Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Today, we don't have any guests. It's just uh, <laughs> Neil and I just shooting the shit today, bro. So that should be a good time, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we got another weekend to the NFL season and another slew of injuries there. So we got a ton of running backs out this year. Now, who's out so far? Well, let's see. We got Nick Chubb was out already, but uh, what's his name went down? Kareem Hunt went down with an ankle injury. Mm. It's been interesting watching the injuries over the last, what, five, six years. Paying, wait, really focusing a lot more attention on the rate of injuries and the type of injuries. I think what's interesting is, is now that we're starting to see a trend into more focus on mobility, shouldn't we be seeing a decrease in injuries? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because you gotta, you also have to look at their their training volume off season, right? Mm-hmm. I think nowadays guys train a lot more, mm-hmm. so they're not giving their body that proper recovery they need off over mm-hmm. the off season. Kind of like we talked about mm-hmm. how the old school football players they didn't train so much in the off season. No, very true. But I think another big issue is the the size of the size of the athletes today, the yeah. mass and the amount of. Just the, what they carry on their frames is at an all-time high. We just didn't see this 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. The, the mass mm-hmm. differential was was exponentially different. And we're talking offensive linemen. You didn't see offensive linemen hit the 300-pound mark until the mid-1980s. Before that, if you had a 270, 280-pound <laughs> offensive lineman, that was a big dude. Yeah. You know, so now... You can't even think about playing offensive line weighing two ninety. No, you get you get crushed, man. Plus, so I mean, you so you look at that, right? We've got bigger guys that are faster than ever before, right? Speed wise, they have to be. The forty times have to have gone down over the years. Maybe not the fastest time, but the overall times among these giants. Yeah, I mean, well, we're seeing we're seeing some really <clears throat> big guys running at some really good speeds i mean we're talking defensive linemen defense we're talking 290 yeah. 300 pound guys running sub 540s so sports science is is working as far as getting guys to perform, perform yes at the highest level maximize what they have out of their bodies mm-hmm. but maybe with that we haven't really taken into account like do we need even more time off do we need more recovery days or you know it's it's a it's a hard thing right because these guys they push themselves that hard because it's going to make them that much better on the field everyone else is doing it so you can't be you know a half second slower Mm -hmm. then i think we have to ask ourselves is this something that is unavoidable the speed differentials yes the athletes are are slightly faster today we've seen the testing between the speeds between jesse owens 80 years ago and athletes today the speed differential isn't that much no right but the size the and size speed. and speed combination yeah. is is vastly different so are we even running into the possibility that well this is ultimately always going to be the case these injuries with the amount of mass that these athletes are carrying today and the speeds that they're running at it's inevitable yeah it's not avoidable yeah, that's a tough one, man. I mean, when you gained a lot of muscle in the past, mm-hmm. did you feel like you got beat up more? 
I don't know. What's I mean, everyone, interesting everyone's is, frame is different, right? Like, yeah, everyone's frame is different. I think what's interesting for me personally, I think one of the advantages of being short is the injuries, the type of hits that I've taken, especially in hockey, I haven't had issues other than head trauma. Yeah. But impact injuries, no. I mean, most of my injuries, honestly, are from soccer, rolling my ankles yeah. uh, way back in high school and stuff, stupid shit in the gym, dropping stuff on me and stuff like that. Maybe like I, you know, dropping the 90 pound weight on my foot, that type of thing. But as far as actual like playing as an athlete, no, I haven't had that issue. Well, I would think the muscle would protect you more from contact, mm -hmm. right? But are we having more connective tissue injuries mm -hmm. because of the exercise? Yeah, I mean, it could be because we haven't had the focus until recently. And I don't think most coaches, and we're still in the very small minority of coaches actually taking into account, okay, connective tissue uh, in regards to overall training protocols. And then again, I think at the team level, at the professional level, I think that's focused more there than it is with the other trainers that these other, that these athletes go to see in the off season. Yeah. So they're with the teams and the organizations, they're working with some r ridiculously smart individuals, right? A lot of science-based, you've got any organization's got what, 15 to 25 different people that are focused on the performance and maintenance of these athletes. Yep. But then during the off season, then they go see whoever they're used to going to training with. Well, that person may not have the educational background. They may not have the same ideologies and they may not have the same availability to, to technology. And that lack of communication between the organization and these coaches, these trainers that these athletes are going to see in the off season creates, can create a big issue. And we've talked to coaches where it's completely different working with someone in the off season mm -hmm. as opposed to in season with a team. Mm -hmm. Like you can be this phenomenal trainer coach, mm -hmm. you know, in this individual setting, but some of that stuff may not really work in that team setting. Yeah, very true. Very true. I mean, the dynamics <clears throat> can be vastly different. Yeah, I think it's a question that is always going to be out there, but it, we're seeing greater and greater injury rates. I mean, I think well, ACLs have been down this year. We haven't seen as many of those, especially the non-contact. I think those are down this year. And I think that's the first time in quite a while. What's interesting is hamstring pulls. You know, we've listened to people like Keith Barr and, and some other sprinting specialists who have talked about, you're going to have, when you push these athletes to these levels, There's you're trying to find that point in which they're going to break. Yeah, because we're asking our athletes to to push the limits farther than any time in in our history. So create more velocity, create more explosiveness. Here's another thing too to take into account: the NFL added another game this year. Oh right? yeah, man, that's that's bad news. I mean, well, I mean, on the body, it takes a massive toll, right? You know, so you know they added that 17th game. They took away the preseason uh, preseason game. And a lot of coaches didn't have any of their starters play at all in the preseason. So is that detrimental to their to their in season stamina, so to speak? Kind of a because the preseason is basically a ramp up, right? I mean, they're not they're not going all out. Well, the guys that are trying to make the team are going all out, but your starters maybe they won't be, and they're using it more as, hey, this is this is getting us up to speed. This is more of conditioning. So mm -hmm. that when we get into the 
regular season, we can go. Your body feels ready, more conditioned. I know in basketball, that's how it is. But when you're talking about this much impact and <clears throat> this much force being applied on you, it's to sit out the preseason to to hold your starters out. Is it really the smartest decision that you could be making? Is it being too overcautious? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It depends on their on their age too, right? Well, yeah, the older guys definitely aren't going to want to get into that. I mean, I think they probably appreciate not having to do that. Yeah, because they're all they're all about preservation now at this point in their careers, right? But at the same time, it's you always hear, "Well, this, yeah, I've been training, but it's not it's not football conditioning. It's not game conditioning. It's yeah. not taking the hits. It's not getting mentally ready to be able to take those hits and take and and get into those collisions." Yeah. And so your and your body, you during practice you only have, you can only imitate so much of that. The intensity in practice doesn't match the intensity of the game. Yeah, because you don't want to mess up your teammates too, right? Yeah. It does happen. I mean, we do see it. We see, but I ultimately think, yeah, practice intensity doesn't match the game intensity. Well, because you got the bright lights, you got the crowd, you've got the adrenaline going. You know, well, you got an you opponent. Just, you just step it up another yeah. level. But you got an opponent. Yeah, you don't have a teammate. In practice, it's your teammate. And so, yeah, you're you're working hard, but it's still your teammate. So in the back of your head, you're going, okay, uh, I don't want to destroy this guy, right? Yeah. I need this guy on the field with me. You know, where now it's your opponent. It's a completely different mindset, right? This is a guy that I have bad intentions for, yeah. right? This is a person that I'm, that, <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to hit with a lot more velocity. I'm going to try to generate way more explosiveness when I drive through this guy as opposed to when I'm in practice against one of my teammates. Yeah, especially quarterbacks, right? They know they're not going to get hit in practice, so they're not scrambling all out. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's one of those things like with, you know, we had Coach Jesse on, and he, he was talking about the hamstrings, and I think hamstrings <clears throat> are one of the most common injuries that we typically see in these athletes. But I think does a lot of this stem from the other types of training that these athletes are doing as far as, you know, since we are, are we seeing more anterior pelvic tilt? Is it putting more strain on the hamstring when they're just walking around or they're just standing there, right? Is that pelvic position ultimately over fatiguing that connective tissue? Yeah, it could just be our lifestyle now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're athlete or not, where everyone's sitting way more mm-hmm. on their phones way more and in, in this position all the time. So, you know, that's going to have an effect too. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I know one of the things that we wanted to get into in this podcast was talking about some of the guests that we had had on over the last, what, what have we been doing this about a year now? Calendar year. Let me look. Holy man. shit. I think it's been over a calendar year. Take a look. No, it's been longer than that now. Has it been longer than that? Let's see. When was our first episode? You know, one of the things I forgot to ask when we had Paul Edmondson on, mm-hmm. one of the things I forgot to ask him was about mass and its effect on mobility. Because we were, you know, we had him on talking about hypertrophy, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And does mass really limit how mobile you can be? November 7th, 2019. Oh, shit. That was the very first. Oh, damn. 2019? Yeah, almost two years, man. Yeah, I mean, we, years. you know, we only did two podcasts that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, so no, maybe three. Technically 2020. Yeah, 2020, yeah, I'd okay. say, is our yeah. first kind of official one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it does, for sure. Well, I know for me, for especially my upper body, my shoulders, 
And I think the more bulk, the more mass you get in your, the more volume you get in the shoulder, you put, that's going to definitely hinder or limit your ranges of motion. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to reach, you know, scratch your mid back, your biceps going to get in the way. It's just no matter how good that shoulder joint mm-hmm. is, you know, the tissues are just going to get in the way. Whereas with the hips, you know, you can, your legs are further apart. Mm-hmm. You can probably maintain most of your hip mobility. You know, maybe when you're you're sprinting, it might look a little different because your quads and adductors or glutes are so big. But as far as being able to do the splits, I've seen some pretty massive guys do oh. this, do front splits, side splits, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, we look at John Call, Juju. Yeah, yeah. You know, he just hit the stage at the Olympia. What did he do? The amateurs. So he did place really well there. But yeah, he's famous for his splits. Yeah. And still carrying the mass that he carries. But when it comes to your torso, I mean, I think especially when you're when you're loading a ton of weight, whether it's bench press, deadlift, squats, it definitely affects your, you know, thoracic rotation. Mm-hmm. It affects your side bending. It's just it's just part of the deal, right? You've got to load all those tissues to grow. Uh, it's a really detrimental aspect of that contributes to to lack of shoulder mobility. I mean, I've felt it personally myself. So it's something that I chronically have to work on all the time because of that. Yeah. But it's the price that I had to pay for something that at a younger age I wanted. So it is what it is, right? I mean, ultimately, long term, if I had looked at the bigger picture <clears throat> and really had more education underneath under, underneath my belt, you know, at 1920, then yeah, I may have changed my mindset a lot. You mean as far as um, not doing the bodybuilding stuff yeah i would have probably i would have been like i don't need it then mm. especially now I, I value the quality of movement over how much i lift yeah you know or how much i'm moving weight wise but yeah at 1920 we don't think about that stuff no because you're still you know you're springy if you get injured you bounce back right away it's Connected not a, tissues, it's not a so big much, deal. Yeah, healthier. The quality is there. Your elasticity is still there. The elastic quality goes down as we get older. So that's something that we always have to deal with too. But yeah, I would. I think I would have totally changed my training regimen. I don't think I would have been looking to to bench press certain amounts. I would have been looking to do bent over rows with certain amounts of weight. I would have been like, okay, I like I'm strong enough. Yeah, you know, there would have been weights that I would have been I would have hit. Or limits I would have hit, and I would have been like, okay, I'm strong enough. I'm yeah, good. yeah. I'm good. Well, I know my goal is just to remain athletic, and then, you know, as my athleticism starts to go down, just try to keep it going as long as possible. So that's mm-hmm. that's the way that I try to train right now is mm-hmm. make sure I'm strong enough to do what I need to do, but, you know, like make sure I can run, make sure I can throw, make sure I can jump, mm-hmm. make sure I can still climb. These are things that I want to do later in life, especially as the kids get older. Yeah, because you want to be able to play with your kids. Yeah, and I want to beat them you, <laughs> as long as I can. Yeah, you want to be you able know? to say, yeah, right? <laughs> You're playing pickup basketball against your son. You want to be able to dominate your son for as long as you as can. As long as I can. Right? But if I'd still dominate him when he's like 13 or 14, then I'm going to question his athleticism. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then it's yeah, like, yeah. all right, dude, you don't have a chance. <laughs> Even at 13, 14, you wouldn't give them to at least 15, 16? I don't know, man. Once, once they're 13, 14, 15 years old, they should be able to beat you at most things. Maybe not strength-related but, or, or strategy-related, yes, right? speed and movement But anything with, yeah. So maybe, yeah, maybe 15. But 15? So. Yeah, if, if he's not beating you by then. then but by then the time he's 15, I'm going to be, let's see, like 52, 53. 
You should still be able. You so, should still be pretty fluid and moving pretty well. Able to move pretty well, but you know, speed wise, yeah, you know, I don't think. Well, maybe I'll try. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I think it's one of those <laughs> things that uh, it'll be fun to to see and find out. But I think that's watch me pull my hamstrings. You could because you're giving that little yeah, bit of extra effort. Exactly. Because there's that motivation to not let your son beat you and pick up basketball or whatever it is that you guys are doing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> are there any sports that you're going to try to avoid with your kids? I don't know. Early on, man, I really want them to just try everything. And it doesn't really have to be sports, just activities in general. Activities in general. In general, yeah. Just all around, I guess, movement vocabulary that we've Mm -hmm. talked about. And then let them figure it out themselves and then see what they naturally gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, kind of support them. I'm not really going to push them. Yeah, yeah. Maybe give them little hints like, hey, you know, you're pretty good at this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you should do this more. But, you know, when I grew up, my parents let me do everything. You know, I wasn't pushed into one thing and I naturally gravitated towards more individual sports or things with rotation. Mm. So like, you know, I started playing baseball, mm-hmm. hockey, and then I got into golf. Mm. And by the same time, I was always either skateboarding or mountain biking or, you know, so a lot of the individual things there, martial arts. Mm. I never played football, mm. you know, besides like Sandlot. Sand, yeah. Yeah. Sandlot. I never played any organized football. Some would say Sandlot is a lot better than right than padded football. Yeah, I think early on. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a big deal. Maybe you know you miss out on some of the strategy components early yeah. on. But Sandlot but is then, a lot more yeah. free flowing as far as moving. You yeah, know, learning movement. And it's always interesting. Like Sandlot, <laughs> I never, I just very rarely saw the type of injuries that you see on the fields that you see in organized. Like I just, it just didn't happen at that rate. Yeah. I think because there is no pads. Well, and there's always been a question on does the padding create a lot of the issue? I know we've asked that in hockey for a long time, especially with head trauma, mm-hmm. you know, because the padding is becoming so hard. I mean, it is rock hard today versus the 1960s, 1970s. Well, when you were playing tackle football growing up, did you ever leave your feet to tackle someone? Oh, launch. Uh, I would every once in a while if the submarine tackle. I did do that a couple times, just even in Sandlot, just because honestly, I saw it on TV. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was really that I saw a couple of college guys and some pro guys doing. I was like, let me see if this works. But you weren't I, launching your head at them. You're, you know, you were, you're kind of wrap them. No, no, I, re- oh, I went yeah? in full submarine. <laughs> yeah. My buddy Gerald Marone, I remember it was one of my best tackles. He was grunting. He was trying to do his sweep. I came off the edge, and he had long legs. Uh-huh. Gerald was much taller than me. Everybody's taller than me. But yeah, most of the time, no, it was solid wrap around tackle. Because right? yeah. you're like, especially for a guy my size, you know, am I really going to take down that person that I'm trying to tackle? For me, it was more just hold on and become a dead weight. Slow would, down, let your yeah, buddies come right? and tackle. Yeah, right? So, yeah. I mean, I... I was always a pretty solid tack and I could drive through people, but still I, I weighed a buck 20, a buck 30. Yeah. You know, so it was more of just wrap around hold. If I don't take the guy down, at least hold on until my teammates get there and help. And we're not seeing that today in yeah. today's organized on and today's organized football. We're seeing the really piss poor form of tackling, to be honest with you. You know, so technique has kind of gone out the window. It's like that kid that just set the record for tackles in a game with what, like 33? Oh, that was that. uh, What was his uh, name? FBS. He's in the FCS ranks. 
But when you look at his tackling, it is all just boom, wrap, take down. And if you at least can't take that guy down, you he's a 230-pound anchor. Yeah. So he's at least holding on until his teammates get there. But everybody wants that highlight. ESPN I was just going to say, knockout. what do you think that's about, man? It, it is. It's. Yeah. I started seeing that in the early '90s. You know, it was the sports certification of everything. It was. I want to be on the highlights. I want to be on the top ten highlights. <sighs> and so that led to, in my mind, it led to a lot of different aspects of that took away from the basics of whatever sport it was you were playing. You know, even today, here's another one today. Guys running footballs, you know, picking off passes and running mm-hmm. into the end zone and then dropping the ball before they even get into the end zone. How many times a year do we see that? We've seen it's happened, I think, three times already this season. In the NFL? Oh, in college and yeah. the NFL. Wow. Either running, it happens on the, more on the defensive side of the ball, but they get an interception or a fumble, they're running it back in. And then they literally drop the ball before they get across the goal line. <laughs> I'm like, how stupid is that, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. But we've created that culture. We've created that that desire to be on TV, to get that sports center center highlight yeah. or that highlight show highlight versus just doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, that one that one segment that they have, you only have one job. Yeah, you only have one job. Get in the end zone and then drop the ball. Like it's not that hard, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the celebrating is fine as long as you cross the line. Yeah, like just, cr- just get over to the end zone and then celebrate. I think the like the taunting rule or being penalized for taunting, like in the NBA. Yeah, that one's gonna or, get that. That's gonna get. Do they do that in the NFL too? Yeah, they just started the crap. That's kind of silly, sure. man. Yeah, that's one of those things. I mean, when you're playing a pickup game of anything with your buddies, you know, you do something over them, you, you taunt them a little bit. Oh, yeah, it's the benefit. Yeah. It's the benefit, right? You got the better of them, so you sh- you talk shit. Yeah. I mean, part of part of sports is mind games, too. Oh, totally. So Muhammad Ali was one of the best of yeah. all time at playing mind games, right? Even Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger was notorious for playing mind games with his competitors yeah. before they hit on stage, right? He was always known for making little comments like, oh, your back's looking a little small, things like that, right? (laughs) Or, you know, Arnie was famous for telling competitors, you're holding a little water there, you know, things like that. (laughs) Just even if they weren't, just to get them thinking, holy shit, am I holding more water than I should right now? Yeah. Do I look a little, you know, smooth? Yeah, so Arnie would would always just screw with his competitors. Well, I remember growing up, so I was 17, I was playing in this um, amateur golf tournament, and Mm -hmm. I got paired up with this guy who was top players in this little amateur circuit, the Mm -hmm. NCGA. And I think we're on 16 or 17 at San Jose Country Club. So he he tees off first, and it's a pretty narrow hole. Mm -hmm. You got out-of-bounds left, out-of-bounds right, and then if you go too far, there's there's a hazard. So he hits his tee shot right down the middle, and he turns around, and he's like, whew. I'm glad I didn't hit that out of bounds. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what an asshole. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm like, oh, that's that's how it is out here. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Hey, you make these subtle comments, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you just put it in that person's head. Just a little bit. Yeah. Doesn't have now, to be you, know, you step over that shot, you go through your routine, and now all of a sudden, at least back then when I was 17, I'm like, oh, there's out of bounds left. Oh, there is out of bounds right. You're not, you know, you stop thinking about, hey, 
just sit just down. Pick, pick your target and go. Right. That's how, that's how you should be thinking. Yeah. But then he, he put that in your head. He puts that in your head. And, you know, I was inexperienced at that point. And yeah. I'm like, all right, I get it. No, totally. That's very <laughs> true. Very true. My perspective being in this industry versus just being a fan and looking at in sports and per, in performance, seeing those two windows, because it's always interesting in regards to listening to fans talk about injuries versus people that are actually in it. Right? Yeah. Well, these teams are paying a lot of money to a lot of really smart people mm-hmm. to try to prevent these injuries from taking place, but they're still, they still happen. They're, they're still going to happen. Yeah. You know, uh, shit happens. Anytime we're trying to, where two humans are colliding together, uh, you know, that's, that's bound to happen. Yeah. You know, I think the question is, is the non-contact injuries, right? You know, it was interesting Baker Mayfield's injury yesterday on his left shoulder, right? So he separated the shoulder again, but he hit the ground when he did it and his arm was out in an extended position. So it was a non-contact injury and the fact that, you know, he wasn't hit in the shoulder area by a player, but it is contact. He made it with the ground. Yeah, it's still gravity. Right, it's still gravity. And it was still impact with the with the ground. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects it because it's his non-throwing shoulder, right? Did he stay so, in the game? No, they took him out. They, he was in a sling after the game, but uh, they only have four-day turnaround. Oh, uh, okay. Remember, they play this Thursday. Oh, you know, and there's another thing, too, in regards to athletes and recovery, right? How much do the leagues really care about the athlete's safety? Because a lot of football players have debated, if the league really gave a shit about us, they wouldn't have a Thursday game because they would give us more time yeah. to recover. Because think about if you play Sunday, you got a quick turnaround onto a, oh, onto yeah. a Thursday game. Well, you're cycle, still beat up. You're still beat up. Oh my God, you're still feeling on Wednesday, you're still feeling Sunday's game. And now you got to go back in tomorrow. Yeah. Right. During that four day process, what are you really focusing on? Are you focusing on training or are you actually just focusing on recovery? You got to be in that room, but for sure, they should be focusing on just getting moving again in that short span. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably watching a ton of film. Yeah, strategize and watch a ton of film, but the actual yeah. training itself, going in and doing a session on Tuesday or Tuesday and Wednesday, or even Monday, like what does that training protocol look like? You know, are you having people squat and do cleans and snatches on a Tuesday after they just play it on on a uh, Monday yeah. uh, on a Sunday? I should say we need to get get chip on here. We got to get chip on here that. and talk yeah. to about that. You know, that's the thing. It's been interesting to see because their schedules are so hectic. And that's one thing that the average person just doesn't get a context of is how busy these people's schedules really are at these levels. Yeah, I think the average person then even, you know, the trainer that isn't associated or doesn't know anyone that's in team sports and doesn't realize what these guys go through and, you know, talking about how they can prevent this, they can prevent that. You're like, I don't know, man, you don't really know what's going on in there. So that that's kind of a bold statement. I mean, we, and we see people that are chronically injured all the time. Is it something that's genetically just who they are? And regardless of what you do for them, is that just who they are, right? Do they have a more elastic tissue quality than than the stiffness that they're kind of looking for especially in in contact sports right and so if you if you don't have that tissue quality that 
you need and it's not resilient enough, are you ultimately going to be chronically injured? Well, yeah, probably. Yeah, if you're playing that kind of power explosive sport, yeah, you're just going to be... Well, it's, uh, some people... Greg Oden. Greg Oden <clears throat> barely played in the NBA, right? But here's a guy that his was his body even... Was his body older than it actually was? Was he actually well beyond his actual chronological years? You know, we we know we can do testing on people, right? We yep. we people anybody off the street can go get tested from a physiological standpoint and be told, okay, you're 25 years of age, but your body is an 18 year old body, okay, according to the set parameters of that testing protocol, right? yeah, or what they're taking into account. But then there are other people that go in and get tested, and they're 30 years old, and the and the tests come back, and it says, okay, you're 30 years old, but your body's a 40-year-old body. So is that the case there? Do Are we seeing some of that take place? Yeah, I wonder if they're starting to do those tendon tests, yeah. the specific type of tendon that you have. I wonder if they're starting to do that in pro sports now. Right. Because I think that would go a long way, even in just general population, and go yeah. a long way to tell us. Well, how our body's going to respond and what types of training then exactly. would be the best for you. Because we don't know what type of training is the best for us. Nobody, nobody knows that when they go in, right? When you and I started going into a gym, did you know what type of sport or training was best for you? Oh, no. Yeah, no. Oh. Yeah, I mean, if, now, if we had connective tissue tr- uh, testing... And then they said, okay, your connective tissue quality genetically is here, right? Yeah, it adapts to this the best. Right. And you're probably going to gear your training more to that and go, hey, I'll throw in these little explosive bouts here and there, you know, but this can't be the majority because I'll have a ton of breakdown. Right. And other people will be the opposite. They'll be able to, they're genetically just predispositioned to be able to take more higher intensity levels to be able to take more volume and abuse so to speak versus being on a more gentle approach so yeah. to speak right so those are things some types of things that we kind of would lo- would only benefit everybody out there if we had that ability to do that testing yeah yeah it'd be cool man to have that accessible because then you would know okay olympic lifting not my thing or swimming would be better for me than than doing you know, gymnastics or something like that, right? Yeah. Well, we look at people that do parkour, right? And they're phenomenal athletes. And the amount of jumping that they can do and the, and the levels of what they jump from. I mean, we see guys on Instagram, social media, jumping from 30 feet off the ground and landing perfectly, you know, perfectly fine. Now, they do have some missteps. That's not, they're not 100% bulletproof, yeah. right? They do have miscalculations in there. But the majority of the time, they're doing pretty well. See, and you would think basically, so those top parkour guys, right? They all, Everyone started out when they were kids or mm-hmm. teenagers. And as you get better and better and better, you know, the guys that get weeded out and then get all the way to the top, those guys probably have the right genetic qualities to be that good. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't have those genetic qualities, you're not going to get that good because your body won't be able to handle all that impact and, mm-hmm. you know, that have that springiness when they land so that they can absorb and then redirect it in a certain Mm -hmm. direction. Whereas if you have really, really lax joints and you land from 25, 30 feet, but you probably, you know, if you started parkour as a kid, you probably found that out really quick. Like, shit, I can't do it like that guy. Right. I mean, I think sometimes with these activities, I mean, you kind of know too right away. 
Mm-hmm. Right. As far as sports goes, maybe not your types of training, but you know, when you're a kid, Hey, I'm better at doing this than I am at doing that. Like, I'm not really a good jumper, but I could throw really hard. But we still see people that that get into a style of training. Yeah. And they have chronic injuries, but they just still keep at it. Yeah. So is do we then have to separate the mindset from the actual physical qual- properties? Yeah. And, you know, some of that is probably a social thing, too. So it's because somebody does something because they're either with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. There's that community feel. They may do something because they just truly enjoy it. It makes them happy versus, yes, physically they get hurt. But when they're doing it, they're still they're having an absolute blast doing it. So, you know, it's it's one of those things of, OK, do we take this away from this person and say, hey, you just got to stop doing this? Yeah. Or do we try to make the person as resilient as possible so they can continue to do it? Yeah. That, and, you know, that's where they have to figure out a way to to scale themselves up progressively mm-hmm. and not make these big jumps. Because let's just say someone that doesn't have great genetic qualities to do CrossFit, but just loves it. Mm-hmm. They start off, they'll probably feel great, mm-hmm. right? Getting moving, it's high intensity. Weights are going to be relatively light when you start out. Mm-hmm. So there's not, you know, there's not too much damage. But then as you get stronger and stronger and stronger, more skilled, then you're handling more loads. That's when the injuries start to happen. Mm-hmm. But they enjoy it so much, you're like, what do we do? Let's just, you know, make sure things work as well as they can work, you know, and try to get them to maybe change their programming a little bit, you know, in a, in a certain way. And that's, that's kind of the best we can do, but we can't tell someone that, Hey, you should just stop. You can tell them that, but I don't know if that's, that's the best thing for them mentally too. Right. Yeah. Because the last thing we want is that person to go into more of a funk emotionally and mentally. We don't want that person there. So we don't want that person to be all just ugh, discouraged that they can't do something. Maybe find to try to direct them towards a different alternative and see if they can, if they somehow gravitate to a different modality. Yeah, that's true. Something that's gives them that same feeling, but maybe it's stretched out over a longer period of time. I mean, it could be intense, but maybe more intervals, like like bouldering is like that, mm-hmm. right? You're, it's really intense for maybe a minute, maybe you're on the wall for 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty long to be on a boulder. But then you're resting. You're literally sitting there for like eight to 10 minutes yeah. or something. Yeah. Well, I think too, it's one of those things where we look at from the mindset of trying to get people to understand the complexity of the human body without trying to make it too complicated, so to speak. Yeah. You know, because people generally want simple. We know that from an education standpoint, we don't want to get too technical, especially when we're talking to our clients. Yeah. Right. You can throw all the technical terminology out there. You're going to lose them probably within the first 30 seconds that you're talking to them. So you've got to really bring it down to layman's terms. So in the same respect, I think our job as coaches is to understand the intricacies of the human body and then try to direct it, try to get all that funneled somehow into a very simple approach for our clients. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, we need to get them to understand is they truly need to listen to their body. Because they yes. they know what's 
what's best for them. They know better than we do. Mm-hmm. They know how it actually feels. Like we're giving them our suggestions mm-hmm. as coaches, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes these suggestions, I mean, they're, they're guesses based on whatever data we have about them and their, their training history or their, their medical history. But ultimately, you know, that decision for them to do something comes down to them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, you know, and we've done it in the past, you felt something, you're like, eh, whatever. I'll just keep going. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. guilty. So that's yeah. not you. You're, not, you're truly not listening to your body. Your body's telling you. They give you the right signals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if everyone really did that, I mean, I think people would hit the brakes more often. And I think what the problem is, is that mindset of it, of don't quit. Yeah. Keep pushing, right? That mindset is there to, to push through it. It's okay. Don't quit. And, and progress has to be made. But sometimes progress is not doing something. Yeah. And that's not a mindset that most people have. You know, and then it's it's different if you're fighting or something like that, right? You need to give it everything you have, whatever right. you have. You know, there can't be this, oh, I'm going to back off because you get your ass kicked. Yeah, yeah. Or if you're in war or something like that. I mean, that's that's completely different, right? But when you're just, say, you have a desk job, you mm-hmm. know, and you want to be healthier, you want to be stronger... You don't have to push it to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because even from a bodybuilding standpoint, you know, you don't, it doesn't require you to lift a lot of heavy weights. No. It's just volume. Just keep adding the volume, give the stimulus to the tissues for mm-hmm. it to grow. But there, in, in that respect, it's limited ranges of motion, a lot of just sagittal plane, but a high amounts of volume, which we know is ultimately detrimental yeah. to, can, can be detrimental to that individual. Especially from a movement quality standpoint. Yeah. You know, we see people that just get stuck into those certain patterns and that's all they know. So we see that they have limited ranges of motion and they're very uncoordinated and they don't have that body awareness when it require when other movements are required. Yeah. And you know, if if ultimately you just you just want to build muscle and that's your thing, then that's totally cool. But yeah, we have to we got to make sure that we we keep some movement quality just for our daily life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the long-term mindset is something we kind of want to get people to think about a little bit more. You know, you talked about just body awareness, having listening to the signals that your body's giving you as far as saying, okay, this isn't really working out. Maybe I should change something. And then also thinking, okay, if I do this now, what will be the trickle-down effect 10, 15, 20 years down the road, which is still always hard to gauge. Yeah. But we can at least make some assumptions. Yeah, because there's always a cost. There's always always a cost with training. Always. Right? You can't... Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. The closer you get to maximum, the higher the cost. Oh, big time. And so it's... For the average person, you don't really ever need to get to maximum because very few times in life are you ever going to be asked to give maximal output outside of a gym. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things is so it's kind of seen. you've heard us talk in other podcasts before of how much strength do we really need? How strong do we really have to be? You know, the average person. Can the average person on the street deadlift 225? No. Yeah. The average person that you come across, not even close, right? Can the average person that you see on the street squat 225? No. Yeah. The people that you see at the gym, yes, the percentage of people that can do that, much higher. But when you take that and spread it out over the rest of the demographic, 
I mean, think about how many people actually go to the gym and work out on a regular basis. Out of the overall population. I don't know. We have to look at it. It's got to be a small It's got to be a small percentage. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really a small percentage. So I think we, we have that mindset of, oh, we're always in the gym, so you see all these people. So people are much stronger than we think. But no, yeah. that's you're only seeing a very small fraction of the general population. So the rest of the general population is not at the gym working out. So if you take a thousand people off the street and you test them for max strength efforts, you'd be, I think you'd be very surprised at how weak uh, most the average population is. Oh, yeah. And they've been able to you know, live their lives pretty functionally still. Yeah, for the most part, right? We do see as they get older, of course, the limited ranges of motion take place. You know, the recurring injuries, the recurring spots take place that they're like, oh, chronic issues that, that they're having. But then it's then that, that awareness should be there to say, okay, maybe I should do something to, to fix this or change it. Yeah. You know, the other thing with, with training is, and I don't think a lot of people think about this is, all right, you're getting stronger. Maybe you're getting bigger muscles, all that. But is your training giving you more energy throughout the day and are you do you have more strength to endure that matters more than having maximal strength in my opinion that's a good point right would you rather have energy all day or be able to lift you know 500 pounds once and then just not and then be feel wiped that, out the rest yeah of the day. not feel that great the rest of the day ultimately when you when you step back from that what was that what did that do for you yeah and so yeah, for some people it can give that them that emotional high that satisfaction of of accomplishing something which is great but then at the same time like you said physically now you're just wiped out for the rest of the day probably mm-hmm. wiped out the day the next day too so what did that really do for you in the long term because that's that's not just going to affect you physically right that's going to affect you mentally and your other tasks oh yeah very much so because you're you're not going to be we talk about people that are stressed out all day mm-hmm. mentally they're just not acutely in the program of what you're trying to accomplish they're kind of wandering yeah and one of the things that we don't want to have when people are training is a wandering mind we want them to be focused on what it is that they're doing at that moment we want them to be in that moment yeah i mean i've encountered that with people where they've just been too distracted oh yeah you know it's a shitty training session yeah because you're you're spending most of the training session trying to get them integrated and involved right we're trying to get them engaged and they're just and and sometimes these things that are happening outside their lives just take much more priority over the training and you know that's one of those times where you're like hey you want to just call it today you know and just maybe go outside for a walk because it's it's no longer going to be that beneficial for you yeah because we're not going to get the results that we're looking for. And ultimately, if you're not engaged, especially when you're moving weights and yeah. moving loads, if you're not fully in- engaged in it and really locked in, the rate of injury is probably going to, the percentage or the possibility of injury is probably going to greatly increase as a result of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I mean, we've had those sessions with people where you can feel that early on. So then it's just maybe a little bit more talking. You take a little bit more time during sets and maybe focus more on the recovery or maybe lighter intensity than you typically do. And then they end up feeling better after. Yeah. Because they're fried. They're fried when they walked in. Yeah. And so on a scale of one to 10, they're already at a 10. You can't take them any higher than that. So the object there is to say, okay, let's down regulate you. Let's bring you down a little bit. Yeah. Thank them for their commitment. You know, 
yeah and say hey you know i know you're going through a tough time or whatever and i'm thankful that you're here you know appreciate that you keep working on your body and in your mind but today let's just take it a little bit easier yeah i think one of the things that we've seen or heard from a lot of our guests is a lot more focus on breathing yeah uh, i think that's one of the things that we've seen a big trend in in the last few years is a better mindset of how breathing is going to help you train and how breathing is actually training. Well, and I think, you know, we forget that breathing is just so fundamental to living, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have poor breathing, you're not going to sleep well, you're going to be tired all day, but we don't really attribute all that stuff to breathing, right? People will go on, they'll go, okay, well, I need more caffeine. I need more of this. I need this, this stimulant, but they don't think about, maybe they'll think about more sleep, right? They won't go back and go, oh, let me take a look at my breathing and assess my breathing. Where am I breathing? How am I breathing? Because even if as you're sleeping, if your quality of breathing is not good, your sleep's going to be horrible. Oh yeah. Even if you're in bed for nine hours, it's going to be horrible. Yeah. Well, I bet the, the percentage of people with even mild sleep apnea is really high. Yeah, probably. What's interesting, though, is getting clients to understand the importance of optimal or better breathing. And that in itself can be a big task. Because when we breathe better, I mean, it really does help open up your quality of movement also. Mm -hmm. Especially for people that are locked up in the upper regions, in the shoulders. If you have limited range of motion and you have shoulder issues, learning how to breathe well makes a big difference in that. You know, and then along with nasal breathing, it's it's such a good way to self-regulate, especially if we're just doing a, let's say we're doing a 30-minute run or something like that, and we're breathing through our nose. Uh, it's a way to help us know, unless you're wearing a heart rate monitor, or if you don't have a heart rate monitor, it's a great way to know that you're not working yourself too hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be something that's going to take... A long time to get adjusted to because a lot of people freak out, mm-hmm. right? So don't be impatient when it comes to practicing nasal breathing. It's going to take a considerable amount of time. It takes patience. Mm-hmm. One of the easiest places that I figured that I practiced nasal breathing in was when I was driving. It's the best opportunity. Yeah, and it probably calms you down from road rage too. Oh, massively, massively. So if if that's that's a place where I would suggest you start, or if you're commuting or you're driving, just focus on breathing through the nose, in and out through the nose. Start there. You're you're just sitting there. There's not a lot of physical stress being put on you, so take advantage of that time. Breathing is core work, and and kind of people don't think of that as core work. If you're not doing a sit-up or a crunch or a plank, then I'm not doing core work. But when you're learning how to re-engineer your breathing systems and you're using your diaphragm and your breathing through the nose, then yes, you are doing core work because you're getting those core tissues to actually do their function, which is to stabilize and control that relationship between the ribs and the pelvis. Well, and I think from a mobility aspect, you know, when we can get into these positions and figure out how to breathe in them and relax it starts to unlock more positions Mm -hmm. and more awareness and more movement yeah because i think what for me personally when we started this whole stick mobility journey was finding out what positions i wasn't comfortable in Mm -hmm. finding discovering what positions i had trouble breathing in and then saying okay i need to start improving these areas 
instead of just avoiding them or, you know, holding my breath when I was in them. Yeah. Well, because now if you were to go do jujitsu or even climbing, right, you're getting your body in awkward positions. And the best way to get yourself to relax is to breathe. Yeah, it is. It is funny how on the wall, your heart rate does get pretty high. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of moments where I have to, I have a better time. I have an easier time of a top roping than I do bouldering. Bouldering still, it's kind of one of those, Yeah, you know, it's hard to let go Mm -hmm. on the wall. It really is, especially bouldering. Because you're 15, 20 feet off the yeah, floor. Yeah, I mean, and if you make a mistake, you're you're going down. Yeah. You're going down. You can hurt yourself pretty bad. I yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, you're going down. I mean, the other day, Steve and I were out climbing. I mean, I was near the top and I went in to grab a hold and I had my hand the wrong position. Mm-hmm. And I did, I went to pinch, yep. grip that, and my hand just went pop, pop. Yep. And next thing I knew. Boom, I I was on my back on the floor. And so it was kind of, it was fun. Yeah. But in the mind, you know, I just went, okay, I got to get there. I got to get that hold. I didn't have it. And I fell. So it's, and when you go through that, it's just your body, just your brain's like, no, I I prefer not to go through that. Yeah. If you could have focused on your breathing at the time, it would have helped you slow down and go, okay, all right, maybe that's not the best option. Let me readjust my hand here. Well, so it's interesting because at that point, you've been on the wall for, like you, like you said, a little over a minute. Yeah. So you're hitting that point of of relative fatigue, right? And so that's when it's really hard to sit there and go, okay, let's... Because you can't take a break. It's not like top roping no. where you can take a break. In top roping, you got the harness. If I get tired, okay, tension, okay, boom. Let me just sit and relax. And bouldering, like, you don't get that. No. Like. You relax, you're gonna you're you're on the you're on the floor. Yep. Like there's so yep. it's it's a little different. So in the mindset is still there, just get through this, just get it done. And yeah, when that's by the time when you do get the top of a climb, especially if it's a difficult climb, it is. It's always interesting to see feel how high high your heart rate is by the time you get down. Oh yeah, I wore a heart rate monitor once, and I think I did a um, God. It was one of the inverted boulder problems. Oh yeah, in yeah. The back, and it got up to like one seventy five or something. I think to this day, I, climbing to me is really a great combination of strength. Mobility and cardiovascular training. Yeah, I think the, you get all of it. And you get the problem solving too. Right? So you get so many different aspects all wrapped up into one neat little package. Yeah. It really, I to, to this day, you know, I tell people if you haven't done rock climbing, it really is one of the best things that you can do for yourself. Well, I've always said, and people probably will hate me for saying this, but you can pretty much get rid of all your crawling if you just climb. Because crawling is is pretty fundamental, right? Oh, yeah. We, we learn this as kids, mm-hmm. and then eventually we stop. We start walking. Mm-hmm. Um, but you start climbing as kids, and with climbing, there's much more complexity to it, mm-hmm. right? And, the, you know, the, the route setters, or if you go outdoors, there's just constant problem solving. Whereas if you're crawling on the ground, I don't know how many options you have. I mean, unless you're, you're breakdancing or, or doing something like that, then okay, mm-hmm. that's different. But... With with climbing, I mean, you're essentially crawling on the wall. Yeah, it's vertical crawl pattern. Yeah, right. And that transfers over. So, you know, I didn't crawl for a long time after I started climbing, and then I went to the ground. I'm like, well, I have push up strength. I have pushing strength. I can run. I can sprint up a hill. 
So if I just try to go into crawl, oh, this is easy. This isn't bad. I could learn any pattern because I've already developed all this mm -hmm. climbing wall. So you can pretty much kill. I mean, maybe people don't have access to the climbing wall, but it's very true. And so that's fine. But I would say that if you do have access to a climbing wall or something to climb, you can get rid of crawling. Yeah, I would uh, definitely agree with that. Some of the things that, that people would want to focus on if they get into climbing is to also offset that with your pushing and pressing motions. Because yeah. you don't get a lot of that in climbing because climbing is predominantly pulling. Mm -hmm. So you do want to make sure that you do offset that with some pushing drills and some and some pressing drills, some yeah. overhead pressing. Uh, because you should have pretty good range of motion, especially when you get into rock climbing. Uh, bringing that arm all the way up, focusing on your, on your breathing, you'll get pretty good overhead shoulder mobility. So offset that, like I said, you're always pulling towards your center mass when you're climbing. We also want to then offset that with pushing away from your center mass uh, with the pressing and pushing drills. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to offset climbing and you want to do it with crawling, that works too. Yeah. That's a great thing to do too. And, or if you have access to a a gym that has climbing and a gym, then once you get done climbing, just go over, do a couple pushing drills, go do a couple pressing drills and I think you'd be pretty good actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't really see many too, uh, too many obese people doing rock climbing. No, it's pretty it's pretty self limiting, man. Yeah. I mean, you can you can get good to a certain point, but then that strength to body weight ratio just it takes over. Oh yeah, very true, very true. I mean, it is good good to see. I mean, I've been seeing some heavier people actually at out climbing a little bit more, and good for them. Yeah, I mean, isn't there know. a there's a, a lineman? In the NFL, yeah, NFL, yeah. that's uh, Schweig, Schweitzer. That's using it for cross training. Uh, for, yeah, cross training uh, plays with for the Washington football team. He's been he introduced that to himself. He started involving that. I think just this past off season, uh, but he really enjoys it. There's another account I follow on Instagram. Big fella. He's easily over 300. Mm -hmm. But to see him on the wall is great, and he does some pretty solid climbs too. You know, especially for a big guy like that. So I know grip strength wise, much more demand carrying that much mass. Oh, yeah. He'd probably rip right? your arm off if you shook his hand. Right. right? Yeah. Because Steve and I talk about it. You know, our dimensions, Steve and I are both a little bit shorter, stockier. You know, could we be better climbers if we lost some mass? Of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the same time, we like having the mass, though, too. So it's kind of one of those things of I'm mobile enough where I'm. I'm a, above average. Yeah. But no one's going to ever say, holy shit, like you're the, you're like mobility master as far as ranges of motion. But at the same time, I, I like, I understand the price of keep maintaining mass is that'll never happen. Yeah. Right. And I'm good with it. Like that's, and the, we've, you've heard us say this before on the podcast. Whatever decisions you make, you have to understand the pros and the cons with those choices, and you have to be good with those pros and those cons. So if you're at peace with that, then great, then continue to do it. If not, if you're restless about it and you're fighting about those pros and the cons, then you got to figure out a way, something different, or find a way to get over them. Well, I think if you're like us, right, we like to do a bunch of different activities. Mm -hmm. um, we're not just specialists. Yeah. So if you're, if you have that mindset or you, you do like these different activities, you know, you have to, your training has to be well-rounded, but you also have to accept the fact that, look, you need to keep some tension to be good, to be decent at these certain sports or else you're going to increase the risk of injury. No. 
right? So you're not going to be able to, you can't train all the qualities or every quality you want at the highest level at the same time. Yeah, no. You know, that's, that's the main point there. You've got to pick and choose like, okay, this is going to benefit me right now. So I'm going to work on this, you know, but that's going to take some energy and your resources. So you can't go a hundred percent in every single phase of training. Yeah, very true. Cause I know for, uh, people have asked me, do you, do you climb outside? And I'm like, no, I don't do that. And honestly, I don't know if I ever will because I, I'm, well, comf- yeah. I'm comfortable enough indoors. Like to me, that's like, yeah, because I use it more as a supplement more than I do a main yeah. objective. Right. So for me, it's not a main priority for climbing. It's more I just something I do two, maybe three times a week. And that's more for the mental aspect trying to solve puzzles mm-hmm. physical aspect of making sure it helps me keep somewhat mobile or a little bit mobile than the average person uh and it's a great way to to really not have to spend so many so much time in the gym doing pull-ups and oh yeah and you just you get really strong at these weird angles yeah well we'll go climbing one day outside not bouldering because that's bouldering outside is really hard you know people will get up to climbing maybe v3 v4 in the gym and go i want to go outside take them outside and they're like i can barely do this v0 yeah i can barely hold on to the rock barely do anything or the well the footholds they're not there for you to see you have to figure it out yeah yeah so at first you're spending a lot more time hanging on and then figuring out where the feet are so the technique is it's similar, but you know it's it's much more nuanced outside. Because it's not labeled for you. And no, it's not labeled. It's not color coded. It's, like, it's not labeled. You know, for the you. harder the climb, you'll see more chalk marks in certain areas. Yeah, that's the only way up. Yeah. But the easier ones, there's it's like here's here's point A, here's point B. Just get there however you can. But it's 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 much different outside. You would enjoy the ropes more. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. If I did outside, you know, rope climbing, of course, would be the only thing I would think I would start with. Yeah. That would feel comfortable. For me, that, that's more fun outside than bouldering and yeah, getting on the ropes. Are you? Yeah. Okay. If we ever look at non-exercise, so to speak, forms of training, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that would benefit people a lot is just dancing. Oh, man. That's, yeah, that's huge. I wish it's something that, I wish I did it as a kid more dance yeah i do i think dance you know because of the rhythm in it i think it applies to just about every activity you do right Mm -hmm. you're building connective tissues you're getting springiness the timing i mean there's so much good things in dance yeah and you see you go to you see so many people that just don't dance yeah Is, is it because they lack that coordination or they lack rhythm so to speak yeah but you're like, if you watch people dance, you're like, oh, you're getting everything that you possibly need. Just about, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, other than just resistance training, so to speak. Yeah, but that you can get that too if you're if you get good enough to do like partner dancing. Oh, very much, yeah. Partner dancing, swing dancing, types those types of dancing, yeah, very much so. Even ballroom dancing, yeah, it incorporates that where you're lifting your partner up. So yeah, you'll you'll definitely learn how to move with load. There was this, uh, God, what's his name? I need to ask Chris. He's a re- he was a really good boxer, but he grew up doing Ukrainian dance as his conditioning. Like his dad, like, so he was a good boxer young. And his dad pulled him out and said, I'm, you're going to have to do this for the next few years. Oh, interesting. And it was this Ukrainian dance. And then Chris showed me a video. 
I mean, the stuff they do is insane, man. I'll, I'll have to post oh, yeah, it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Ukrainian-style dancing is yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, it's the level-changing, the plyometrics, the, oh, yeah. everything, the dexterity. It's it's amazing, man. Yeah. So now, I guess, you know, his footwork in boxing is phenomenal. Yeah, I can see where that would transfer over. And then you get the rhythm, the, everything. Yeah. It's one of the primal things that we have that really allows us to get all the things plyometrically movement wise working active ranges of motion uh, a- active mobility usable mm-hmm. ranges of motion that we have well i think it's part of a lot of cultures too right it's just it's a traditional thing that they do at big events at big events yeah but we just don't see it's, it a lot and not even here. big events just gatherings people just they dance they dance yeah, right it's just the thing but we don't really do that here as much. Yeah, we don't see that, huh? Mm-hmm. Even at weddings. Like at a wedding, you like you'll see like a hundred people at a wedding. You know, 30, 40 people out on the dance floor. The rest yeah. are just sitting there watching. You know, it's kind of like, is it because they have there's so many factors built into that, but it's one of those things where you like minus the age, you know, but even older people. You see older people out there dancing and, and people that have been doing it for for a long period of time, they continue to do it. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those things where if 100 people are at a wedding, and you would kind of expect at least a good 50 to 60 of them to be out on the dance floor at any given time. Yeah, it's almost like a social anxiety. Type yeah, so it's, there's a lot of other aspects to it more than, other than just the physical. Yeah. But from a physical standpoint... Yeah, just getting out there and doing something as simple as dancing is extremely beneficial for you. Well, when you hear a beat, it's pretty natural to just start moving your body, right? right? Like I see it with my kids. Yeah. You know? You put music on for kids and they just get into it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like start grooving. Logan's 15 months old and he'll he'll just start bouncing. Bouncing. Yeah. It's It's pretty funny. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's, it's, it's from a society standpoint, society changes us as we get older. Uh, either gravitating more towards dance or gravitating away from dance. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think it's more gravitating away from yeah, dance. Yeah, where we should really encourage it. Yeah, you know, because it's also that form of self-expression, right? And being able to let go. So just go do it. Go do it. From a social standpoint, I think a lot of people are like I don't want to embarrass myself out on the dance floor. Who gives a shit? Yeah, no one really cares. No one cares. Yeah. You know, nowadays you may become a, a GIF or a meme. Like that could happen. But then you'd have popularity on a whole different there scale. So there's, a, there's a whole different benefit. You could end up being, hey, that's me. I'm a, I'm a really pop, I'm a viral <laughs> GIF, right? Well, thank you again for joining us today's podcast. You know, it's just Neil and I just rambling on about everyday stuff, things that we've been seeing, things that we've been looking at. So until then, be good to each other. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and whatever platform you're on, either Apple, iTunes, or Spotify, please, if you could leave a review, we'd appreciate that. If you have any questions that we can answer for you, be sure to leave those in the comments also. If you're looking for more information on our education, our products, please go to www.stickmobility.com. And also hit that subscribe button to that YouTube channel. And don't forget our live Instagram classes three times a week. If you want to join in, grab your sticks and hit that 45-minute class.